Bitcoin and ETH on my uh, my update here. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be back on uh, Money Talk with John Schofield, the Tempest Investment, and Andrew Sullivan of Outset Global. But get ready now. Uh, we're going to have a quick hit on the news, and then we're going to have Danny Giddings and Mike Rouse give us, giving us another exciting show of back chat. Um, I'd like to say thanks to Christy Never Lie Flat. Christy Lai, giving it her all, along with, uh, she's our producer, along with Tung Wing Ming, who is our sound man. Looking at the weather today, fine and dry. A little bit cool in the morning. Max temperature around 16 degrees. Uh, right now, it's 11 degrees Celsius and 56% humidity. The time is now 8.30 and the news with Tom Harding. The Labour Department says it's launched 21 prosecutions after inspecting construction sites run by a contractor linked to a number of fatal industrial accidents. Officials also handed out 55 improvement notices after checking the 13 sites. The department announced it was launching the inspections on Thursday, a day after a 55-year-old worker was crushed to death by a collapsed beam. Lawmaker Lam Chun Singh from the Federation of Hong Kong and Kowloon Labour Unions urged officials to inspect other contractors linked to recent industrial accidents. We faced the fifth wave of pandemic situation and many construction work uh, delayed because so many workers get the COVID-19. But now the situation has become stable and the government also relaxed the social distancing measure so that uh, we were aware that the construction site and the contractor and the company, maybe they need to speed up the construction process and sometime will neglect the occupational health and safety measure. Turning overseas, draft proposals on saving global biodiversity have been published at the COP15 summit in Montreal, Canada. With just one scheduled day of talks left, the draft covers 23 targets. The BBC's Helen Briggs has more. The UN Biodiversity Summit in Montreal is regarded as a last chance to put nature on a path to recovery. Throughout the talks, there's been division on the strength of the targets for restoring nature and how money should flow to developing countries to finance vital conservation work. In an attempt to forge a deal, a new text of the proposed agreement was released today by China, which holds presidency of this COP. The document retains a key goal of protecting at least 30% of the planet for nature and sets out how to boost the flow of international aid to developing countries. The authorities in Moscow say the Russian Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu has visited troops fighting in Ukraine. His ministry has published video footage of him in a helicopter that purportedly shows him inspecting frontline positions. The BBC's Danny Eberhard reports. The short edited video shows pictures of trenches but does not contain material that lends itself to independent verification of the reported visit. Russia's defence ministry doesn't specify when it's supposed to have taken place. An American think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, believes Moscow is orchestrating a public relations drive in the wake of criticism by pro-war Russian bloggers following a series of military reverses in Ukraine. The Kremlin recently publicised a meeting between President Putin and his generals that's said to have taken place on Friday. Qatar says measures taken by the European Union over an alleged case of corruption will hurt relations, including discussions on global energy security. The European Parliament suspended all work linked to Qatar after allegations it had been involved in offering bribes. The BBC's Sebastian Usher has more. 
The Gulf state again rejected allegations that it had anything to do with a major corruption scandal. Four people, including a serving MEP, have been charged with taking bribes and gifts from Qatar in a bid to influence decisions at the parliament. The Qatari diplomat statement expressed deep disappointment, but the Belgian government had, in his words, made no effort to engage with the Qatari government to establish the facts. The scandal has erupted just as European countries have been looking to Qatar as an alternative source of gas supplies. Argentina have won the World Cup for the third time, beating the previous champions France 4-2 on penalties after a game for the ages. Extra time ended 3-all after France's star striker Kylian Mbappe scored a late goal to complete their second comeback of the game and his hat-trick. Argentina's Lionel Messi scored twice and has now capped a stellar career with the biggest prize of all. The BBC's Katie Watson is with Argentinian fans celebrating in Buenos Aires. People really wanted this, not just for Argentina. Yes, a third win after 36 years was important, but what was important was that this was a win for Lionel Messi. People here, everyone's wearing, you know, Messi shirts. This was something that everybody felt so personally that it wouldn't be fair if he walked away from such a glittering career without the World Cup. Um, but this is just the icing on the cake, the fact that Lionel Messi can go away with a World Cup win, not just for him, for his family, for Rosario, where he comes from, which has got such a big, you know, footballing culture and such a, a huge support there for him. But the whole of Argentina and the whole of South America, really, that's got behind this. And the High Court in London is expected to rule later today on the legality of the UK's agreement with Rwanda to send some asylum seekers there. The British government struck the deal with the East African country to discourage people from arriving on small boats across the English Channel. But non-governmental organisations and some individuals have challenged the policy in court. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Danny Gittings. Your guest presenter this morning is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Danny. In our main topic today, we'll be talking about plans to reopen the border with mainland China and the surge in COVID cases in Beijing and other cities across the mainland. Chief Executive John Lee said it's highly possible to reopen the border in 2023. And there are reports that thousands of customs, immigration and police have been dispatched to prepare border checkpoints for a reopening. But at the same time, there are reports of growing numbers of infections in major cities across the China. A University of Hong Kong study predicted nearly one million people on the mainland could die if the country fully reopens without a fourth COVID booster, antivirals and social distancing measures. So how prepared are we for the reopening of the border? How concerned should we be about the emergence of new COVID variants from the surge of cases in China? And at 9.20, we're going to be joined by RTHK sports reporter Atom Chung to look at that incredible World Cup final. So let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call. The number there, 233-88266. Joining us for our main discussion this morning here in Broadcasting House, we have Benjamin Cowling, the head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health and University of Hong Kong, and Mark Michelson. Mark Michelson, the chair of Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Good morning. It's nice to have such a full house in the studio. Almost back to old times. Um, <laughs> Benjamin Cowling, let's go, let's go to you first. Welcome back. I think it's been a while since we had you on back chat. Um, we've got numbers going up in Hong Kong, although at a sort of 
steady pace, aren't they? We're sort of adding a few a few thousand, um, and not, we don't know exactly what's happening in China. But all the anecdotal evidence suggests that um, what do you call it? The R factor there must be something extraordinary. That's right. So in, in Hong Kong, we, we've had a lot of cases for quite some time now, I think since the summer. Uh, we've, we've never had very low numbers of cases on a day-to-day basis, but most cases are very, very mild. There's only a small number of people in hospital or with severe COVID. And the characteristics of the illness have changed now. I think the severe COVID spectrum now is more about exacerbation of chronic conditions rather than the really nasty pneumonia that we'd seen earlier this year and in other parts of the world in earlier in the pandemic. So that's a different characteristic of, of the infection now, now that we have a lot of immunity. In China, as you said, we, we have very little situational awareness about what's going on, how many people have been infected. We know the case numbers, but those no longer reflect the numbers of infections because there's very little testing being done. And so... There's some indication that in, in some major cities, maybe Beijing, it's already peaked in, in a very short space of time because uh, so many people have, have been infected there. But we don't have the situation awareness to say that for sure. We know there'll be quite a lot of severe cases, unfortunately, because the vaccine coverage is, is higher than we had in Hong Kong, but it's not as high as it could be. Um, but, but exactly how many will be unclear. I think the prediction from Zhong Nansan is that there will be very few COVID deaths in the coming months in China, which I agree with. Because, why, why is that? Why is because that? there's very little testing. So obviously, if you don't do much testing... Oh, you're not saying there won't be deaths, but right. you're saying that they won't be categorised as COVID necessarily. That, that was basically what, what, yeah, I mean, what I interpret that he was saying, that there will be very few COVID deaths, because if you don't test, then of course there won't be a, a lot of confirmed case deaths. But unfortunately, I think there will be a lot of excess mortality, and that will become apparent in due course but not immediately. And it, it gets mixed in with all the other kinds of winter mortality from flu or from cold weather exposure or whatever. So to what extent the COVID's in the numbers will be difficult to quantify in the short term. This prediction of a million deaths, I mean, I mean that's well, it is a huge number, but if we think of a million people died in America of COVID, didn't they? And America's got a population a fraction of the size of China. But that's right. But those million in America, many of them died before vaccines were available. And the vaccine uptake in the US hasn't been that good for various reasons. I, mean, I think they're in the 60% range for, for fully vaccinated. And of course, in mainland China, it's, according to the National Health Commission, above 90%. And so opening in the post-vaccine era, we would not expect so many deaths. I think that's, that's, that's a disappointment because it could have been different if the vaccine coverage was even higher, particularly in the elderly. Mark. Are we, uh, how's the business community viewing where we are? Better, certainly better. People, I mean, executives are, are more encouraged, but at the same time, it's not like the rest of the world. And right. also the access to China, which is a key attraction for Hong Kong, is still not there. And although there are hints, strong hints, that it may begin to open up soon, that still isn't quite the same. Should Hong Kong focus internationally in the short term and let the border open when it opens? Well, sure, but they're connected. They're connected right. very closely. So it's, I think it's very important for the border to open, or at least to a reasonable extent, both domestically and internationally. Ben, is there scope for more easing here? Certainly in the border restrictions. I mean, you go back a year, we had to be really, really careful about the border because we had no cases in Hong Kong a year ago, uh, December 2021. And we were trying to keep it out with, with these long quarantines, a lot of testing and so on. And even one case getting in 
caused havoc in some cases. But then now that we, we're having 10,000 plus cases a day, 20,000 cases a day, it, it really doesn't make much difference whether we have small numbers of cases coming in over the border or not. And they are, as we know. Mm -hmm. So I, actually, I don't think there's any rationale for any of the border measures that we have right now. That's not only the testing on arrival. Uh, we've got the amber code already. It's the testing on day two. It's the vaccination requirement that I don't think is, is justified anymore. Well, quite Maybe. a lot of countries still have vaccination. I mean, so, I, was in, I was in Indonesia and I had yeah. to show vaccination certificate. Yeah, I, I would say around the world, I don't. that doesn't make any sense. And the US CDC has said very clearly that there's no rationale for making a distinction between vaccinated and unvaccinated people now. There may have been in the past, but there's not anymore because unvaccinated people have most likely also got some immunity now from, from recent infections. And anyway, that the incidence of severe disease is so low. If you're worried about tourists coming in and occupying the hospitals and the ICUs, you can have an insurance policy or, you know, you, you can have some other way to deal with that. It would not be large numbers. So I don't think there's a rationale for the vaccination requirement either. So you would drop all border restrictions? I, I would recommend dropping all. I mean, not, not tomorrow, but I would certainly hope for a timeline to say at this point in time, we're not going to have any further restrictions because it takes time for, for, for airlines, for airports to make arrangements and, and so on. I mean, I, I just found out the other day that air crew that come into Hong Kong still need to do quarantine. They're in a closed loop, which is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very surprising that, that we're still asking foreign air crew to, to stay in their hotel room while they're here for, for that 24, 36 hours. That would hours. certainly explain why more flights haven't resumed. Um, so, and on Cathay's side, I think that there's manpower issues because of all the layoffs and then they're, they're, they're hiring back, but it does take a lot of time to, to hire and train. What's the logic of doing RATs and PCRs at the same time? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, on, this, on any given day, if you're doing a PCR, I don't think there's much point to do a rapid test, but that's what we have in Hong Kong. We have the, that's the, right. We've come down from... Nine is it to seven and now to five, to five. consecutive RATs and yeah. down from four to yeah. two PCRs. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have no objection with recommending that people do, do a test if they think they might have been exposed, if they've got symptoms. That makes a, an enormous amount of sense. But requiring asymptomatic people to do daily tests at this point in the pandemic, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. And children, of course, in Hong Kong are doing it every single day. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. What, what, what's your, I mean, my kids take uh, RAT tests every morning before they leave for school. And what's your opinion? And, and it does mean that if there is a case at school, it, it gets identified very fast and they it can does. isolate. But uh, what's your opinion on that? I, I, again, I don't think there's a lot of rationale for this kind of measure anymore. When we were having a massive surge earlier this year, it made a sense as, as part of the package of mitigation measures we were using in our fifth wave in February, March, April. Now, I, I don't think it's something that we should sustain in the long term. We have to look at the cost and what we're getting from that policy. And I, I, I can't see a lot of advantage, a lot of benefit from that policy. But suspend, the spend, suspension of classes? Well, again, we have to look at the cost of that, particularly the indirect costs on families and the impact in terms of what we're actually getting in benefit from those class suspensions. Because as, as far as we know, COVID in children is very, very mild in school-aged children. Um, of course, we but prefer if you, children. You ask most parents; they still would prefer that their children don't catch COVID. And if uh, sure. closing down a particular class for a few days, because of course it is a targeted policy, isn't it? Schools don't close down; you just close down the individual class. It is. But how, what's the effect of that? I mean, we're going to be looking at that in Hong Kong U. But I, I, I have a feeling that it's not going to be actually a particularly effective measure because there's so much COVID around in the community. Um, it, it may have some effect, but when you think about the cost. And, and the cost effectiveness, I, I think, is going to be limited. I mean, look around the world. Which other parts of the world are thinking about this kind of thing to control COVID? I, I can't think of anywhere else in the world that's, that's thinking that's a worthwhile investment of, 
of resources. Okay, we're discussing uh, both the uh, reopening of the border with uh, the mainland, uh, suggestions that, that that's going to be coming soon, and also uh, the current COVID situation in the mainland in Hong Kong. You heard, just heard Benjamin Cowling from the uh, University of Hong Kong, also with us, Mark Michelson uh, from Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. If you've got any thoughts, do email us at backchat at rthk, or you can leave a message on our Facebook page, uh, backchat on rthk radio free. A couple of comments coming in. Uh, Mike in an email says, how long are those running this place going to be able to whip the COVID animal to scare the monkeys. Uh, and a uh, message from uh, TC uh, on Facebook. Uh, yes, one, that's one word uh, I won't read there. But uh, <laughs> on a related note, the uh, recent loosening of restrictions highlights that maintaining the zero COVID policy, at least in 2022, is mostly based on politics instead of science. If the rationale for such restrictions was to save lives, why are the authorities potentially allowing one million people to die, according to Hong Kong U? And this is obviously a reference to the, the Hong Kong U study about the mainland. Do their lives matter? Um, uh, Professor Cowling, we, we haven't really talked um, actually about that. I, I mean, I, I don't think you were necessarily involved, but you, you'll know the, the, the methodology behind it, that study mm -hmm. suggesting that uh, uh, one million people could die on the mainland. Um, tell us a bit more about that. Well, it's, it's just using a forecast of what's going to happen in the coming months, or even just the coming month, actually, because COVID is spreading so fast now in, in, in cities in the mainland, with a large number of, of infections and the severity profile that we're aware of from, from observations in Hong Kong and elsewhere in the world. We know that in unvaccinated older people that there can be consequences. We know that when hospitals fill up, like they did in Hong Kong at the beginning of this year, that there's also consequences of that. The mortality was two to three times higher in Hong Kong in that peak when the hospitals were really full up or overflowing compared to other times. So we know there's a potential for a very large impact, but we don't have precise data on vaccine coverage. We have the National Health Commission statistics for, for nationwide, but any individual city, we're not quite sure what, what exactly the vaccine uptake is and how transmissible, how many infections there will be in a short space of time. That, that, that paper was, was notable because it recommended using mitigation measures, which, of course, we've been using in Hong Kong earlier this year and still even now, like the, the school testing. And in China, there's very little official mitigation measures, as far as we can see. Shanghai just announced that schools are going online for a month. Um, there's no mask mandate, as far as I'm aware, in cities in China, um, which is surprising, actually, in, in this period of time. And I would say the next month would be critical to have some kind of mitigation measures to slow down this wave of infections, not in the long term, not like we've had in Hong Kong for almost a year, but at least for a month or two, to slow down the spread of infection and to protect the hospitals as much as possible. But it's going to be very difficult. I think, unfortunately, there's going to be too many severe cases for the hospitals to be able to manage. We had that in Hong Kong. Uh, in China, I don't think it would be a surprise if that happens. And then there's problems associated with that, not only for people with COVID, but for people with other health conditions. How Especially about the, uh, the yeah, rural areas? Yeah. Sorry. Especially in rural areas, in the mainland, yeah. the health services yeah. are not that robust. That's right. But again, we, we don't have situational awareness. There's, there's very little testing being done. Uh, there's very little information being available on, on, on what the level of infections is at the minute and what the level of pressure on hospitals is at the minute. It sounds a bit like the Trump era, where he was saying, the reason we've got so much COVID is we're doing too much testing. Well, there's an element of truth, right? I mean, it's the other way around in China, that if you don't do very much testing, then you don't find very many cases and you certainly don't find very many severe cases. And that, that's an issue. I mean, I would, I would really encourage major cities in China to at least do some testing, some targeted testing as surveillance, so that, it, you know, if, for example, you test the people in your hospital, you know how many of them have got COVID over time, how many people coming into the accident and emergency department have COVID, 
because you can track that as a ref reflection of what's happening in the city as a whole. You don't have to test everyone in the city, but at least you pick a place to do this targeted surveillance and have situational awareness. And I don't think that that's happening at the minute. How about the uh, concern with sort of hundreds of millions of people catching COVID in China? In inevitably, they're going to be new variants, aren't they? Singapore already said that they're, they're on the alert for this. So there could be some new variant that sweeps around the world. Well, that's right. So in, in, in previous waves of infection around the world, I think in India, we had the Delta variant came out of that very large wave in India. In, in previously in Brazil, I think there was a variant came out of there. So that there's a risk of that, but I would say if there is hundreds of millions of infections in China within the next two to three months around the world, there'd also probably be hundreds of millions of infections in Europe, the United States, South America and Africa, whatever, all, all other parts of the world. There's still a lot of infections every day. So I don't think it's a unique issue with, with China. And in a sense, we've avoided having this issue of new variants coming from China in the last three years because there haven't been infections there. So we're actually up, you know, that in terms of where new variants could have emerged in India, I think in Brazil, in, in maybe in Africa. There hasn't been a new variant that's come out of China in the past three years. So that's maybe a, you know, the, the, that, that's a, a good, uh, the good side of things, a, a better way to look at it. Okay, uh, let me bring in a couple more comments from listeners. Uh, if you've got any thoughts on uh, these topics, do email us at backchat at rthk.hk. That's backchat at rthk.hk. Or you can leave a comment on our Facebook page, backchat on rthk radio free. Uh, Eileen on Facebook says, RATs and mask wearing cost money. If the government wishes us to continue with these policies, why doesn't it give, it, give us it to, to us all for free? Plus 10 million people die from cancer every year and about 6 million from, well, I think that from, from another course, Eileen, which you didn't specify. Uh, and Mike, in an email, uh, Mike has commented a number of times on vaccines on, on this show, show before. And uh, uh, another comment about vaccines, Mike says, what should people who haven't taken the vaccines do? Because the first free shots target strands that are now gone. There is a risk for some to take the, these vaccines and they can't do anything but stay at home, uh, Benjamin Cohen? Yeah, well, so for the, for the first point, I, I, it, it's true that I do think the government should be giving out rapid tests to children to use every day, but that wouldn't make them free. We'd still be paying for them just through our taxes rather than, than directly from our wallet. And they do, actually. I mean, uh, I mean my yeah. kids, uh, low-income kids at my kids' schools, they, yeah. they, they, get, they get given test kits yeah. by the school. That's, yeah. that's very reasonable. Uh, on, on the second issue, you have to remind me again, Oh, the second issue is saying that uh, uh, because, uh, well, Mike says that uh, the, the vaccines um, target, oh, yes. the, 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 they target the strains that are now gone. But it's yeah. not quite simple, is that, is it? It's not quite simple. I mean, the, the, the strains are not completely different. They're, 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 they're not the same anymore, and it would make more sense to have updated vaccines. And actually, yeah, I, I we noticed... We do have, don't we? We have the we bivalent. Do. In, Although, in Singapore, I believe they've recently announced that everyone getting the Pfizer vaccine should be getting the updated one, not the original one, even if it's their first dose. Now, of course, in Hong Kong, we only use the updated one if it's a booster, not if it's the first and second dose. Um, I, I would so actually... Some people are, more, are worried that there are more side effects with the updated one. That's correct, because it's, yeah, it's got it's two things in it. I mean, I think that there's some indication already that there might be slightly more side effects because it's got a bit more stuff in it, because it's a, it's a bivalent vaccine. It's, it's got two strains in it. But even so, I, I mean, I would still actually think we should move to using that one rather than the original one. And but, how, how helpful is that? Because, I mean, Omicron itself has moved on. I mean, right. that, that one is targeting strains of Omicron that are no longer the, the dominant right. But one. I think that, that may always be the case with the vaccine. So as long as we can stay closer to what's circulating, it's going to make more sense. I think maybe in Hong Kong, once we can get an updated, inactivated vaccine from Sinovac, maybe there will be this kind of switch to say, we'll just use the most updated vaccine of whichever, you know, Sinovac or, or, or BioNTech. 
Uh, but until then, I think we're, we're going to have this choice and this, this also this continuation of using the original strain uh, in, in the vaccine, unlike in Singapore, where I think they do just say everyone can get the new one. And of course, vaccines do provide, they do provide protection, even if they, tar <coughs> they provide different levels of protection, don't they? So they still provide protection, even if they're targeting different strains. That's right. The, the, the main reason to get vaccinated is to protect yourself against severe disease. Uh, the protection against infection is, is relatively less, relatively lower level, and it doesn't last for that long. We, we've shown that very clearly in, in research from Hong Kong U, maybe 30% protection for two to three months, and then it's probably gone. But for the protection against severe disease stays at a high level for a long time. Before we started the show, we were talking about China developing its own mRNA. Hmm. How's that going? Yeah, I don't know. The, uh, supposedly, uh, according to some news reports, that vaccine's being used in Indonesia. It's been it's been tested in Indonesia. Now it's approved for use in Indonesia, the Chinese mRNA vaccine. But it's not being used in China, as far as I know. Um, and that's a surprise because if it was working in the in the trial in Indonesia. I would have thought they'd jump at the chance to start using it in, in China as well. But if it wasn't working in the trial in Indonesia, why did Indonesia approve it for use in Indonesia? So it, it's a bit of a mystery, and there's no public data, as far as I'm aware, on, on the performance of that vaccine. We always talk about uh, Sinovac and the China vaccines being less effective, but, I mean, huge numbers of people in Hong Kong have been vaccinated with them, and many, many of them have caught COVID and gone through it. So they, they, those vaccines, they may not be quite, quite as effective as mRNA, but they clearly are providing substantial levels yeah. of coverage. No, as well. I, th I think when we look at the original strain, like, you know, two, two years ago, there was an advantage to the mRNA vaccines because they were, they were so potent. Uh, they, they did a really good job against infection with the original strain when they were very well matched. But now we've got these drifted strains that are quite different oh. what's in the vaccine. I think the advantage for Pfizer is actually mostly gone. And so we've shown in, in our Hong Kong research earlier this year in Hong Kong, the, the performance of the vaccines was actually quite similar. The Pfizer vaccine was slight, a tiny bit better, but actually the inactivated vaccine from Sinovac did very, very well. Are you talking about protection against... Serious, in all aspects. In, including serious disease. In all aspects, <coughs> against infection as well and against severe disease. But so, for, for older people, the third dose was really important for inactivated vaccine. Two doses wasn't quite enough to give that high level of protection against severe disease. And in China, when they report the statistics, they're still reporting the two-dose coverage in their older adults. And I would actually prefer them to talk about the three-dose coverage in their older adults because we know the third dose is really important for inactivated vaccines. So you're actually saying, I mean, if they, if they could really get the third dose out to um, people in China, across China, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't matter so much that um, they're using these inactivated vaccines rather than the mRNA. Yes, but I, I, as well, there should be a fourth dose. But I think you're yeah, right. The, 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 the three doses of an activated vaccine are a really high level of protection against severe disease. The fourth dose would be important as a booster because many people had the third dose a year ago. Right. But uh, four dose... That yeah. was going to be my question. Yeah. How long are you protected? Uh, so from, from the Hong Kong data, we don't have uh, brilliant information on that. From elsewhere in the world, we know there is a waning in protection against severe disease. Right. But it's not an enormous level of waning. You don't go down to zero at you know, any point. It just comes down slowly over, over six so, to 12 months. So a booster is important after six to 12 months, uh, particularly for older people. But uh, the, the protection would still be at a reasonable level, even if you don't get the booster. So I should go and get the bivalent as soon as I can. Uh, well, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know your history. <laughs> when, when was your last jab and when, if you had an infection? Because an infection is like a natural booster as well. That's but true. I have a feeling I wouldn't qualify because yeah. I've, I've had four vaccinations yeah. and COVID. But I, I mean, as, as general advice, I would say for, for older people, if you can get a booster every six to 12 months, I think it would make a lot of sense. Okay. Mark, I got, we've got to bring you into yes. the conversation before <laughs> well, nine o'clock. I'm not an expert on vaccines. No. <laughs> um, should we be asking for Hong Kong to have privileged access to the mainland? Or should we just go along with the rest of the
of the world when when China's ready. Well, I, you know, I would I don't know if we should have privilege, but you know, in terms of of trying to both for Hong Kong people and also for international companies, for example, China's really important. And if we want to if we want our international companies to still have major operations here, I mean not manufacturing but headquarters and so on, it's going to be difficult. Uh, just one example, one of one of the companies that's a major European company, we're considering some very serious investments for Asia, but Hong Kong is not even on the list. We're building technology hubs in India and looking at Singapore and Australia. This is not everybody, but it's fairly typical. And we would have been on the list before. And a lot of that is COVID policy. There were other considerations as well. But, you know, once you're off the list, it's hard to get back on. I would say that looking, speaking from my old Invest Hong Kong background, you can see the companies that move out. But you can't see the companies so easily that choose not to come, let alone not even to consider. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a, a company that it's one of the biggest in the world, and it's in technology, which is you know one of the key areas we're trying to develop. So you think though there's permanent damage here? It's not all going to bounce. Back I think some of it's going to be permanent. We don't know yet, but you know I think in the medium term, particularly, we ha- we have to see what comes back, both in terms of tourists and and business. And what will help in the short to medium term? What will help most? Uh, well, I think I think a clear uh, a, a clear idea of where we're going to go. You know, with some. Specifics in terms of of the opening up and and the access to mainland is a very important part of that process. Well, the uh, I mean the government has been lifting restri- you know, internationally. They've been lifting restrictions yeah. pretty fast over yeah. the last six months, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, and that that's helped. But you know, it's still in comparison with everyone else, right? Where everyone else is open, and so the big picture here is it's China, right? It's still access to China, and Hong Kong is not, is not important in some ways as as a stepping off point to China. But it still is in, in some other way. Okay, we're discussing COVID in Hong Kong and uh, in China. And also, of course, the, the talk about reopening the border with China. And there's uh, suggestions the border could reopen in the new year, at some point in the new year. If you've got any thoughts on that, uh, do email us at backchat at rthk.hk. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free, and leave a comment there. We'll be continuing the discussion after the news. But uh, later on, we'll also be welcoming Atom Chung to talk about that incredible uh, World Cup final uh, in the early hours of this morning. Uh, the weather, you don't need me to tell you that it's cold. It was 10 degrees this morning. It's now risen to 12 degrees. The good news is that it's going to be rising to uh, 16 degrees later in the day. But wrap up warmly. We'll be back in three minutes. Chat. I'm Danny Kittings. Your guest presenter this morning is Mike Rouse. In the second half of the show, we're continuing our discussion about COVID, both in Hong Kong and in China, and also the prospects for reopening the border with um, with China. Later, in the, uh, after 9.20, we're going to be talking with um, RTHK sports reporter Adam Chung about that incredible World Cup final in the, uh, in the early hours this morning. Uh, joining us as we continue the discussion, uh, still here in the studio, Professor Benjamin Cowling, the head of the uh, Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health and University of Hong Kong. Uh, Mark Michelson, the chair of Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. We're also now joined on the line by Silai Shan. Silai Shan is the deputy director of the Society for Community Organizations. Uh, Missy, good morning. Good morning. What's the impact on families of the, of the changes we've been making to the controls, the COVID controls? Uh, you mean the cross the border? Yes. Yeah, uh, there are many efforts that, that, that for example, um, some some of them they cross border to work or some cross border to study. That's a problem. And then there are some of them, their family in, in mainland, they need to have family reunion or even their 
parents, grandparents, they are sick or pass away, they need to go back, and so there's many problems. Or even transportation of some materials to come to Hong Kong and then affect their uh, work, something like that. Right. Are, are they, have they easing up measures? Uh, have we got enough quota? I don't think so, because uh, um, there are very few quota, and actually, before that, every day we have many... I think it's over ten, uh, one hundred thousand of Hong Kong people going in, going out, uh, out and in the uh, um, mainland and, and Hong Kong. But now it's just just a few thousand a day. What, so, uh, yes. what is our problem. what is our quota now? Is it just increased to three thousand or something? That's for sure. Yeah, just a few thousand is totally enough, not enough. You're presumably following these reports, so all these reports emerging in the last few days, uh, saying that the border could reopen well, even before Chinese New Year. Uh, I mean, how hopeful are you? Uh, yes, actually, everyone is uh, 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 waiting for that. And then even some of them, they, they stop to look for a long time because they, they need to prepare to go to mainland uh, in case they are open border. I see. So a lot of people are left in uncertainty, aren't they? Right, because they don't know when the border is going to reopen, but they don't yeah, want to yeah, take yeah. a job in case they the border don't want to does. And then they need to go back immediately. But it, uh, and, and some of them even actually is too urgent their matters, so they they need to apply for leave or quit their job. They already be mainland because uh, they have family issues, uh, family problems they need to handle with. Uh, so some of them, they already go, go bad because they shorten the day uh, of uh, 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 staying in that kind of uh, something like that. So, so, right. so they need to, to do that. What is happening with the children who study? Are they yeah, still no, crossing the border? In some cases, they stop studying three years, uh, uh, parents at that. Wow. Because they cannot cross order to, to, to study and then the, the study actually uh, don't... So they're not going to How schools. Many they see to, to, and they don't want to attend a Zoom, and, and there's many problems. Are they study, they're, not, they're not studying online? Or they can they find another school in the mainland if they can't come here? No, some of the children, they, have their, they only have their uh, Hong Kong ID, and then it's very hard to And then we study expensive, you don't have ID there. And then some of the children, you know, they actually they don't want to go to school. And then, okay, now you don't need to go, and then they... To go. So you're saying some children have not been to school for free yet? We're we obviously storing up huge problems for the future then, do you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think maybe not a big amount, but I think a certain percentage of these kind of children. Mm-hmm. And they study secondary and then uh, at the stage of physicization go on versus D or not. And then, and then it's very difficult to and then they give up. Sounds to and me like you, you're, in your work, you've met some of the families with children where they haven't been to school for three years. Is that right? You, you know of some cases? They are stuck in, in, in mainland, and then even their parents, they, they have no way to, to, how to, how to, how to help the children. They, they, they only play a game at home. Uh, and of course, this is very few cases, but we have many cases, for example, they, we have some of them, they give up. Hong Kong study and then study in Hong in mainland and then some of them they need to move to Hong Kong to 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 study so different different cases but but you can see there some of them they really stop study. The reports now are that uh, the virus is spreading very rapidly in the mainland. Mm. How is that impacting the uh, poorer families? 
we don't know much about the the, the situation about that. But but our family in Hong Kong, they don't afraid of that. That they just want to go back because there are many issues they need to handle. So once they are open or even not not fully open, many of them already go go in. Because the, uh, because, the because personal reasons are so compelling. Yeah, for example, their parents sick, uh, sick very serious. Their grandparents sick very serious, and or they pass away, they need to go back. Yeah. Professor Cowling, in terms of reopening the border with China, how, how worried should, should we be about um, that bringing a new wave of infections into Hong Kong? Or so it, it's actually pretty open in this direction. I, I think people from the mainland can come to Hong Kong. There's no cap, as far as I understand. But they the don't world. do so in large numbers because they then have to be quarantined when they That's get back. That's right. So, so. It's, it's the other way. So I, I don't think we, we have much influence on, on that particular policy, but I hope that, that in, in the mainland they would relax that fairly soon. Um, they may need to set a timeline to make sure they got enough staff at the border crossings and at the airports and so on. But for, from their point of view, I, I don't think there's much rationale to keep those measures in place when they have a lot of infections in their community anyway. It's the same situation as Hong Kong. The border measures are needed when you're at zero, like they were a year ago, but they're not, not, not doing much good after you've got a lot of cases in your community. And how about Macau? Macau is still at zero, yeah. incredibly, or somewhere close to zero. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's going to last for very much longer, um, but uh, they'll have to decide how they respond to it when they do have a large outbreak. Because, of course, in the past they were very, very strict, but I think they're going to follow the, the, the mainland changes. So I, I don't think they're going to have lockdowns again. Um, so, so fairly soon, I think, we'll be hearing about cases in Macau. I mean, of course, in Australia, I'm just thinking of the Australian example. The Australian example, when uh, COVID started, especially on the East Coast, mm. you did have other parts of Australia, like the West Coast, that, I mean, Western Australia actually managed to remain a sort of but at that locked time, away for a long time. Western Australia still had very strict border restrictions and very strict measures in Western Australia. So they were at like an island in, in Australia. And, uh, but because of the distance as well, there was not a lot of cross-border car travel. It was mainly flights in. And so that they were still able to restrict things and, and keep at zero for longer. I don't think that would be the same for Macau and, and other parts of yeah. You, you don't think we'll see sort of essentially islands emerging within China? That's I, right. I don't think so. I think that's very unlikely. And fairly soon there'll be a lot of travel around the, the country for, for the Lunar New Year as well. One of the things that the World Cup, we're going to discuss the World Cup on the pitch later, um, but the world, one of the things has been the stadiums with 40, 50, and yesterday 90,000 people are completely maskless spectators. Hmm. There, have there been surges? Uh, in in Qatar, ah, I mean, I, I I would imagine so, but I would also think that they're not that concerned about it at this point in the pandemic. Um, in in other parts of the world, there are still clusters of cases whenever there are large events, but uh, I I don't think it's it's so much of a concern anymore. The same would happen with coughs and colds and and flu as well, and it, it's not that notable. Okay, let's return for probably the last time this morning to the issue of the effectiveness of vaccines, because uh, several listeners have uh, sent in comments, and they're all um, uh, fairly critical. In in terms of vaccines. So let, let, let me read out all the emails we've got together and uh, Professor Cowling, perhaps you'd uh, mm. uh, like to respond to them. Um, uh, Mike, in a couple of follow-up emails, uh, saying, first of all, that Israel's study shows that vaccine e efficacy lasts six or seven months. Those not vaccinated had less COVID than those vaccinated. Also, Pfizer recommends that uh, users should take the first and second shots before the booster. Why is it, um, presumably, Professor Cowling saying people should take the booster? And then uh, before you respond, uh, uh, one more from uh, Michael. Michael saying that um, 
uh, Ben Cowling, you've been a consistent advocate of the use of uh, the so-called vaccine as an epidemiological tool of mitigating COVID. This makes no sense as there's no randomised control study supporting this hypothesis. Africa is largely unvaccinated but has no issue with, uh, at all with cause mortality. In Australia, Portugal, Finland, you pick the country who are highly vaccinated, have a massive increase in cause mortality. Currently, Australia running at 17% increase, even though 99% are fully vaccinated. Uh, Professor Carolyn? I think there's a lot of evidence from randomised control trials that the vaccines provide protection against infection and also against severe disease. There's a lot of evidence, including in Hong Kong, that the vaccines protected people, but they're not perfect. And we have to be careful to recognise that the, that the vaccines are not 100%, uh, but they do provide a high level of protection. In terms of Mike's comment about the, the updated vaccines uh, for flu, every year we get an updated vaccine with, with, with more similar strains to what's circulating because the, the strains keep changing. And th there, there's never been a case where we've recommended that instead of getting this year's flu vaccine, you get last year's flu vaccine. Pfizer still recommend that the first two doses of their vaccine use the original one because that's what the clinical trials used. And I don't think there will be any clinical trial of a first and second dose with the bivalent vaccine because that would be very difficult to arrange now. Uh, so that's why Pfizer will, will continue to recommend that you get the, the vaccine in the way it was tested. But just with as with flu, I think we're better off keeping updated. And so in the future, I think we'll have a seasonal COVID vaccine program where people are recommended to get a dose every six to 12 months, particularly older people. And six the vaccine, to 12 months. So that could be uh, twice a year. Could still. be twice a year. Could be once a year. Could be twice a year. In that range, I think we'll have to see how things settle down. And the vaccine to be used should be the most updated vaccine available. And so th there won't be a choice to get the original virus vaccine that, that was a good vaccine two years ago, but is, is maybe the, the, the later ones are, are going to be Can they be combined then? Our annual flu shot and our annual oh, COVID so, shot? Some manufacturers are looking at putting the two things together, but it's going to be an expensive shot. So the, I, I think indications from other parts of the world are that where was a flu vaccine that the price is about 50 Hong Kong dollars, at, at, at the source cost. COVID vaccine, probably 10 or more times that. And so if you want to get a, a, a jab of both and you're going to a private doctor and you're going to pay for it, it's potentially an expensive vaccine. And so that may not be for everyone. So the, the manufacturers may still choose to keep them separate because if they put them together and the, the market comes down because of the cost, then they're, they're going to ultimately lose out compared to having a separate vaccine for each thing. I've heard of people going and having one in each arm. That's COVID right. in one arm that, and that's the recommendation. in the other. Yeah. That's the recommendation at the moment. That's yeah. right. You can also do it in the same arm in, in, in two different places, or you can have one in each arm. It's going to be a huge public. I mean, in other countries, uh, they've stopped providing vaccines as, uh, on public health services, haven't they? In Britain, I think. I, I think that there's, there's, there's a, a, a tendency now to start thinking about the cost. And so if, if, the, if the price you're paying for a dose is a certain amount, and what it's preventing, you can also calculate, is, is a certain amount in terms of preventing people seeing the doctor, preventing people going to hospital. You've got to weigh up the costs and the benefits. For flu vaccine, that's very clear because it's, it's a cheap vaccine. But for COVID vaccine, because it's quite a bit more expensive at the moment, then I, I think that's a more complicated calculation. And that's why the focus in many places is now just on the older adults, certainly not on young children like we have in Hong Kong, and certainly not so much on younger adults either. I think older adults is going to make a lot of sense, but, but other age groups, we have to be, be yeah, think a little bit more. We don't, I don't hear a lot of this in the almost daily press conferences. You, you oh, the press conferences have largely stopped now. So. Well, yeah, I know, but when they were running, and even now they come, they're still coming out from time to time, we don't seem to be getting this in-depth explanation. 
Uh, no, I, I've heard a lot about the, the, the concern from the government that the vaccine rate in, in older adults and in young children is, is not as high as they would like it to be. But uh, I, I, I don't think there's a need to be concerned about the vaccine rate in younger children. There have been cases of severe COVID in that age group, but, but not a lot. It's typically a very mild infection. And uh, for, for older adults, I think that there's been so many efforts now to push that vaccination rate up, including the vaccine pass, including other things. Um, I, I think at some point it would be necessary to call it a day and provide vaccines as a seasonal program, but no longer try to strong arm people into getting vaccinated and, and maybe even think about other ways to, to boost the what vaccine about, coverage. What about side effects in younger children? Over the vaccination? Yeah, for vaccination, I, I haven't seen a lot of data on side effects in younger children because Hong Kong's one of the few places in the world that actually administers vaccines to this group. Uh, inactivated vaccines, I, I think we've seen data that the, the side effects are very mild. And the mRNA vaccines there, we had the issue with uh, myocarditis mm -hmm. earlier, and then that was stopped when we extended the interval from, from one month to, to two to three months. But uh, I, I, I don't think there's a reason to be concerned about the side effects exactly, that the question with vaccines that I would have is about the cost effectiveness, given the cost per dose um, and, and what they're preventing, especially now we're on to the fourth and fifth, fifth dose. So Sorry, I have to, to follow you up on that. You're, you're saying there's an important point for many parents who might worry about this. You're saying the risk of myocarditis among... Um, it's, very, it's very low now. You know, it's it's, it's much lower than before because yeah. it was a serious issue before, wasn't it? It was, and there were, there were cases that were being talked about... Um, I, I, I haven't heard of any such cases in, in, in recent months. I think that's gone, that problem. Michael. Yeah, ju just one quick comment, because what, what Professor Colling is saying is very helpful. You know, obviously it's a moving target, so we're not sure. But that's as far as, you know, executives and their families and so on. This is what they want to hear. They at least want to have some guidance, and many of them feel they don't get it. They don't get it, particularly in Hong Kong, and they get mixed messages all the time. Let's uh, quickly, before we finish, let's go back to uh, Si Lai Shan. Uh, si Lai Shan, I wanted to ask you something slightly different. We're hearing a lot of reports of, because COVID is spreading so fast in China, uh, families in Hong Kong are buying up medicine and trying to send uh, medicine, or even traveling into uh, China to try and take medicine to their relatives. So what, what do you know about the, 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 this, 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 this kind of, these kind of cases? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have some kind. They they looking for the medicine and then send to mainland because many of them they let off the medicine uh, because of sale or some of them they just uh, pay safe to have some medicine on hand in case they are, are sick. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's uh, <clears throat> we've also heard stories. It's very difficult to now, right now. The delivery service isn't to China. If you want to send medicine, it can take it could take one month. Yeah, yeah. So, so some of them even they go go back by ourselves, by themselves, to 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 help them. And are yeah. are they worried themselves about the COVID spreading so much um, uh, in China? I don't know. Maybe some of them they already infected with COVID, <laughs> so they they thought they were been we fine. They could go back. Yeah. yeah but but do them. people send by by post because I've noticed uh, long delays in letters getting through to different cities in the mainland. Uh, from Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. You are also um, getting the same information. So they just bring, bring, bring it by themselves. Yes. Yeah. Okay, we're all, almost at uh, close to uh, discussion on COVID, but let's just go back to um, uh, Professor Cowley just to finish off. We, uh, just Professor Cowley, your prediction for the next couple of months in Hong Kong? Uh, uh, in Hong Kong, I, th I think we'll, we'll have more COVID cases. I don't think we're, we're quite at the peak yet of this present surge, probably with the latest subvariants. 
but uh, I, I think as the winter comes to an end, we'll see the numbers coming down again, and then uh, hopefully that there will be a. Some a pe- I did push- see some predictions that COVID, the, the current surge, would, would would have passed its peak by now, but it, that hasn't happened. Yeah, I think I think it's the latest subvariants that are spreading, where there's still a bit of immunity. Uh, there's bits of susceptibility where where because it's a change virus, it, it can still infect people who've had COVID in the past. But uh, that will go eventually, and I think once we pass the winter, hopefully there'll be a bigger push to to remove a lot of these restrictions because remember for, for things like flu the longer we put off a flu season the bigger it's going to ultimately be when it does come back so the argument of keeping measures in place to keep flu at bay is is actually the it, it's making it worse ultimately when, when it eventually does come back i don't think that's a a very rational argument but if we can reopen in the spring and summer that would make more sense than than reopening next winter and so i hope that we'll we'll we'll, we'll have a, a relaxation of the remaining policies after this winter is over okay we'll have to draw our main discussion to a close this morning. Uh, thank you very much uh, for our guest, uh, Professor Benjamin Cowling, Head of the uh, Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health, University of Hong Kong. Very nice to see you again here in the studio. And also thank you very much uh, to uh, Mark Michelson, the Chair of Asia CEO Forum and IMA Asia for joining us in the studio. And thank you to our phone guest, Ti uh, Lai Shan, the uh, Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organisations. Yeah, well, that was quite a World Cup final, wasn't it, in the early hours of this morning? Uh, I didn't stay up, but uh, my uh, co-host, Mike Rouse, did, right? Uh, Well, there's two fabulous matches this weekend. Um, The third-place playoff, Uh, Croatia um, won that. But what struck me about that third-place playoff, first of all, was both sides came at it really seriously. I mean, there's some uh, speculation that they're not really fighting for much. You know, they, they're not in the final. But they both came at it, hammer and tongs. I OK, well, yeah, Johnny, Johnny, yeah. so let's introduce you yeah, first. Johnny, as, of course, as always, Adam Chung, uh, RTSK sure. sports reporter. Yeah, oh, Mike, I almost forgot about that third-place playoff because last night's match was so exciting. But you're right, Morocco were playing for pride, and uh, it was a great game. So, uh, I mean... I'll just give everyone a quick recap for our listeners who didn't watch it. It was a crazy game last night. So it finished uh, uh, 4-2 on penalties for Argentina, who dominated most of the game. Uh, a penalty from Lino Messi and a beautiful goal from Angel Di Maria put them up 2-0 at half. Then on the 80th minute, uh, France, 80th minute that's yes. right, France just woke up when uh, they drew a penalty and Kylian Mbappe scored from the spot and then he tied it with a beautiful volley just two minutes later. He scored so, three goals, right? He did. So he, he scored again in the uh, extra, extra time, time, but that was after Messi had put Argentina ahead. So Messi and Argentina thought they had won it. They only needed to hang on for a few more minutes. And then with two minutes left in extra time, France drew a penalty for handball and Mbappe scored to make it 3-3. Then in the shootouts, uh, Messi and Mbappe both shot first for their country. They both score. France missed the next two, and Argentina went on to win. Have we ever seen a World Cup final like this before? I was going to say, I've been watching World Cup finals since 1958. Um, <laughs> oh, so well, show your age, right? I don't care. I, I saw Pelé in 58, and Brazil beat Sweden. Um, that was, I think the most exciting one I can remember in all these years was uh, well, at the time I was British, so I guess it would be 66, yeah. and England against Germany, where you had the same thing. England coasting along 2-1, and right at the last minute, Germany get the equaliser, pushing it into extra time. But this one was 
Yeah, Adam, 80 minutes. France weren't in it. It's like they They were dreaming somewhere else. It was all Argentina, all Argentina. And suddenly, in the blinking of an eye, the two goals from Mbappe, wow. And especially the volley. Yeah, that that second goal was amazing. So that basically turned the game on its head. So we talked about Messi and Mbappe. Those are the two big performers. But there are other guys too. I want to mention Angel Di Maria. All right, because Messi's 35. He said this was his last World Cup, but same goes for Di Maria. These two guys have been together for a long time. That uh, second goal by Argentina came on a counterattack, started from, uh, by Messi, then a great pass from uh, Alexis to Mc, uh, McAllister, and then Di Maria just finished it. And you know what? The whole game, I thought he owned the left wing against the French defender Jules Conde. And I thought maybe Lino Scaloni, uh, the uh, Argentina manager, took him out a little early because after, after that, uh, France could, sort of started to come back a little. Stabilised. One thing that impressed me, and it may surprise you, I thought the referee did really well <laughs> because he gave three penalties um, and he wasn't interested in any objections and none of, none of them were challengeable, actually. He was spot on with all of them. Um, so full marks. I think he's a Polish referee. Yeah, he's a Polish referee. Yeah, he he, he was spot on. Uh, nothing controversial. And there was one play. I think it was in extra time when he picked out uh, Marcus Thuram for diving for in diving, the box. Yeah, and he didn't hesitate. A yellow card for diving for diving in the box. So he he was really right on the ball all the way through. Yeah, totally. Impressive. You say this is going to be uh, Messi's last World Cup. I already seen reports that that, that that could change now, couldn't it? Basking in this glory. He he said he wants to continue playing for Argentina. He he says he wants to experience what it's like to put on that Argentina uniform as a World Cup champion. Uh, but we're talking what the next World Cup four years from now he's going to be almost forty. So I don't know if he's going to play another World Cup match, but I could see him carrying on for Argentina for the international matches in coming the, up. In the Copa uh, America. Exactly, yeah. in Copa America and friendlies and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another interesting fact about uh, Messi, so he was named player of the tournament. Uh, he had seven goals in total, but this is the incredible thing. He was a perfect six for six from the penalty spot in this tournament, including two from the shootouts last night and the shootout against the Netherlands. It's funny because some of them can't, can't get it. The name Harry Kane springs to mind. <laughs> we need to, maybe we need a, another penalty coach yeah. for the England team. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at Messi, he's won everything, right? Almost 100 international goals, uh, 10 Spanish league titles. This is the only thing missing from his resume, and now he's got it. So celebrations all over Argentina. Also want to mention uh, Emmy Martinez. What about the goalie, Argentina's goalie? Yes. Uh-huh. Right? He stopped... Uh, right at the end, there was one... You thought France must score. Yes. And somehow he stopped it. He stopped it. And he looked very calm too. He was dancing afterwards, <laughs> handing the ball to the shooter to play a little mind game. And then he stopped Kingsley Coleman. He made sure a man he missed. And uh, that was it. For spectators last night was, was, was in a way terrible because it was so exciting. You couldn't go to bed. It didn't matter how tired you were. And you were sitting and you're thinking... Should I take a chance? Kick off at 11. Okay, it'll all be over before one o'clock. Uh, yeah, I'll risk it. You know, I'll be a little bit tired in the morning, but it won't matter. One o'clock came. Oh, no, too bad. We're going to extra time. Yeah. Another least- half an hour. Oh, that's not enough. Let's have some injury time for the extra time. And then, whoa, penalties. Why not? Why not? You know, and two o'clock turns up. Wow. 
How about Mbappé? I mean, he. How, how do you, you score three goals in a World Cup final and you still don't win? Yeah, that that's amazing. I mean, the last guy to do it, England '66, right? Oh, so that has happened before, right? It has. Yeah, he's only the second guy to do it. Um, that guy won the in '66. Exactly. England won. Okay, so he's the first one to score three goals. The and you first don't win. one to score a hat trick in a World Cup final and not win it. That can't feel. And Mbappé is very efficient. Like that volley when he scored, yeah. he could have touched it a few more times, but he took it first time and it went straight in. Very efficient, uh, deadly from the penalty spot, uh, just a great player. And he's only 24. So he'll be around in the next World Cup for he'll sure. He'll be around for sure. Two and he's more. already got one under his belt. Yeah, he won four years ago in Russia, which I, I did see. I did go to Russia to see. <laughs> So Argentina come out on top, but they won't have Messi. You think they won't have Messi in the next World Cup? So uh, it, it, be very hard to repeat. You know what? We have seen thirty-nine-year-olds play in this edition of the World Cup. All right, so nothing's impossible. But right? his style of play, I don't think at thirty-nine, forty, I don't it's think he's very demanding. I, I can't see it. I mean, yeah. the only thing I would say is because Argentina won the World Cup, they don't have to go through qualification. And also, the next World Cup is in North America, so he may be more inclined to try. Uh, but but it's it's really hard at his age. And, I mean, Ronaldo is only thirty-seven, and he's clearly well past his best. He is. I mean, he's he hasn't said he he's retiring. But look, I mean, the coach is not even starting him. Yes, the clubs are retiring him, and he's got yeah. no club. Yeah. But I don't think he will come out and say he's retiring from international football now because it looked really bad on him. You know, you've got Messi lifting the World Cup, and then. There he is, what, training with Real Madrid and, like, uh, who wants him okay, now? So thank you so much, Adam Cho, <laughs> for joining us on Back to Every After Late Nights, watching the matches to, uh, to, uh, to talk through the World Cup. It's been great having you. Um, no problem. It was a lot of fun. Best final ever. <laughs> and, Mike, thank you for making it in for Back Chat after, yes, a... Uh, I was energised by, by the teams. <laughs> Okay, the uh, weather forecast, as I said before, you don't need me to tell you it's cold, but it is getting warmer. It started at 10 degrees this morning, it's now 12 degrees, and the forecast is uh, that it will rise to 16 degrees during the day, although it's going to remain cold um, over the next couple of days. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. I'm Dr. Siu Kaka, pediatric respirologist. The best protection for kids aged six months or above against the surging pandemic is arranging for them to get COVID-19 jabs. Catching COVID-19 isn't like having a cold or flu. A severe case like encephalitis may lead to intensive care or even death. Vaccination can reduce severe cases in pregnant women, who can then pass antibodies to the fetus. Newborns can also get the antibodies through breastfeeding from vaccinated mothers. The news with Todd Harding. Talks at the COP15 Biodiversity Summit in Montreal are continuing with delegates seeking agreement on key targets to protect the loss of nature. The main goal is to protect 30% of